Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Jenny, good morning. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm super. It feels slightly disingenuous because we've already had like a 10 minute conversation. <laughs> Yeah, we could start again and then if that's something that you like. <laughs> no, no, I like it better this way. Anyway, okay. how, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And you are, are you? I am super, really super actually. Um, and you're based in? We're based in Singapore. Um, right. Gorilla Space started in Singapore in May of 2017. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So not that long ago, but you're originally from Singapore? I am originally from Singapore. In fact, uh, I'm a very, very proud Singaporean. Awesome. Um, in the different places that I've lived uh, outside of Singapore uh, for 25 years, I've always spoken very highly of Singapore and, in fact, enticed many people to come work in Singapore. And uh, so when I uh, came from France back to Singapore, some of my friends are saying, huh, you're finally eating your own <laughs> oh, dog food. Yeah, exactly. But this is interesting. I didn't know you lived outside the country for so long. It's kind of like I am. I mean, I haven't lived in the United States for 27 years. But unlike you, I'm not going back. And I'm not unproud. It's just it's too far away. And it's more more interesting to me to be here. But if you've lived outside the country for... 25 years like you can't be that old not that i can't not that i care but why um, it's just so interesting why? because you're right because yeah. singapore really is an amazing place you don't know this but my first time in singapore was the end of 1990 mm -hmm. yeah so i've watched it grow a lot even back then it was different than it is today but why like where have you lived and why would you go away yeah so i left singapore really to have a bigger view of the world to challenge myself. Um, so I left when I was 18, uh, went over to Australia for studies. Wow. And then from Australia, I went to the U.S. to continue my studies at UNC Chapel Hill. Oh, right. That is in, uh, yeah, in the, in the research triangle in North Carolina. I'm so glad so you said that. Then, you're one of the few people I know, sorry to interrupt, you're one of the few people <laughs> I know who actually did the risky maneuver of going to <laughs> North Carolina. And then, yes. go, and then going to Duke. Yes. So at North at UNC, North Carolina, this was like, you know, some 20 something years ago, right? Nobody has heard of Singapore. And I remember, I remember being in, in Chapel Hill and saying, Oh, yes, I am from Singapore. And someone would say, Oh, so where in China is that? Right. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Yeah. So I would always say, well, it's south of China and you take a flight and it's another, you know, four hours away. Yeah. And, and then fast forward to the, you know, the recent years when I was sitting in the movie theaters in, in Paris watching the Pirates of the Caribbean and then having, you know, the, 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 on, on the film saying, Hey, you know, we're going to dock in Singapore. So Singapore definitely has come a long, long way from not being known to being in the movies. <laughs> what was the perception? This is really interesting to me, right? So I have a view. I'm from the Northeast of the United States. I mean, I was born in California, but raised mostly in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and that area, right? And if you know anything about the geography of the U.S., you know, the Northeast is considered like, you know, a pretty snobby, kind of self-centered, self-contained place. And the view on places like Carolina, you know, the Carolinas 
is just very, it's like it's the South, right? And it feels, I don't know, slightly less elite. That's not the case, right? As you know, where UNC is, like you said, <clears throat> it's in the research triangle, super educated people. That, you know, the view we have in the Northeast is not true. But I'm just wondering, what is it like a little bit more, like to go from Singapore to, to Carolina and just have to explain to people constantly, like, where Singapore is? And before you left, did you know that it wasn't so well known? Or was that your first experience? Of well, life? UNC is very well known if you play basketball. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> because that's where Michael Jordan went to school. Got it. And I wanted to go and just experience what it was like to be in the same school and basically to watch, you know, uh, the big league games for wow. very little money. Wow. That's so, <laughs> so good. So that was kind of, uh, you know, when, uh, in, in our younger days when we, go from the line of being risky um, uh, or to, you know, being risk-taking or or crazy. Um, so that was what took me to UNC. And actually, UNC is in Chapel Hill and the Research Triangle, which is a very vibrant place full of people that come from all over the world right. um, for, for great academia. And in fact, Chapel Hill, I think, has the highest number of masters and PhDs uh, in the U.S. Wow, I did not know that. So, That's awesome. Yeah, so as a place for a young woman to to grow and to learn and to explore and really to deep dive into many topics or any topics, that was an, an, an exceptional place. And of course, then ex, you know, going outside of the town uh, to explaining to other people where Singapore was. That was always a challenge. <laughs> um, but that got me thinking very early on, how do I tell the story of where Singapore is? Because awesome. the Singapore story 25 years ago isn't the Singapore story today. No, not at all, actually. And and I think maybe that was the beginning of, you know, understanding of, you know, there are people with very different backgrounds, very different point of views, very different upbringing. And having that common space and commonality that we can have conversations. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, how has Singapore changed in the past 25 years in your view? And a lot of your, that time, I presume has been spent outside of the country. Yeah. 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 So absolutely. tell me. Yeah. It's, uh, I've actually seen Singapore change throughout the years because even though I was living outside Singapore, I lived in France, I lived in Hong Kong, in China, Australia. Um, I've always come back and visited, but when we visit a country for two weeks at a time, we, we see it through a very different lens, mm. um, and things that get very compacted and very pressed together. Right. Since moving back, it has definitely been a breath of fresh air, uh, because it's much more cosmopolitan, um, you know, with, with country, with nationalities from all over the world. And I think the last stats is that 40% of people living in Singapore today are not Singaporean. So they've come from all over the world. So I think that is, that's a very, very big change. And it adds to the very interesting exchange of ideas and points of view, storytelling, uh, skills and experiences that both locals and foreigners or rather anybody living and working in Singapore can experience and I think that this is a very special moment in time and and really I'm enjoying the moment and, and every bit of it 
Can you tell me a little bit more about your experience in France? And I presume you speak French now, right? Yes, I do speak French. Right, like probably <laughs> easily. Um, but before you went to France, and how long did you live there? So I lived in France for 10 years. Wow. Uh, I went to France without speaking French. That's what I thought. Without speaking any French. At all? I actually, at all. Wow. At all. Um, and I thought, okay, you know, I've, I've lived in Hong Kong. So moving from Singapore to Hong Kong, I had to up the game in Cantonese quite rapidly because sure. I look like any other Hong Konger. Right, right. And, and not being able to speak, uh, really put us at a disadvantage or at least put me and my family at a disadvantage in Hong Kong. So I learned that very quickly. So going to France, I thought, you know, I'm going to be able to do this very quickly too. So um, I enrolled myself for three weeks, or three months, sorry, three months intensive class at the Alliance Française in Paris. And basically from Monday to Friday, every day, would park myself at Alliance Française for the classes and then stay back in the library, listen to audio tapes, go out with friends, meet people, and keep speaking. And I'm sure I butchered French when I first started, and nobody understood anything I said. But, you know, in three months, I basically could speak, uh, hold a conversation, get around. I had the lay of the land in three months. So, so I know that I can, I can, I can pick languages up quite quickly. Right. And, and having been exposed to different countries and different nationalities, I can find my way very easily. Right. It's an amazing, it's an amazing skill actually to have. Sorry, I interrupt you, but that's an amazing skill. That level of adaptability is so important. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that skill has really helped me quite a bit because even then going to school in France and then working in France and then, you know, working in Europe, adapting to different cultures, uh, speaking to different people. Um, and working with, you know, Italians is not quite the same way as working with Germans. Um, that definitely has helped a lot. France was a very good learning ground because the French are very French. They have their particular ways of doing things there and, and very set ways. And so, you know, breaking down those barriers and understanding, um, was very, very good lesson learned. Uh, I remember the first time I started at Murex, it's a software uh, company, I basically went home and cried my eyes out because it was very frustrating starting at Murex because um, the, the many things in a French company or in French culture that is understood, this is the way things are. And there, there's very little onboarding or very little understanding of how to do things. Um so that that was a that was a hard nut to crack but sticking with it for after a week and in understanding it then you know life became much easier one year became two two became five and five became you know 13 years in UX Wow Yeah Can you talk to me a little bit about language and culture adaptability and and I'll tell you why I have a view on this right that I lived in Japan for 20 something years and mm. I found that the more of the language I understood, the more of the culture I understood. And that the people that were there, even other people that were there for 10, 15 years, but that didn't speak the language, still had a hard time understanding, you know, not just because they didn't understand what people were saying, but because they didn't understand why people were doing what they were doing. And I feel personally like there's a lot of culture embedded in the language. In even you said, like, 
at Murex, there was no onboarding about how to behave and all these things that were understood and just accepted, mm-hmm. I think sometimes get embedded in the way people speak to each other. How did you figure mm-hmm. out that like learning a language was going to be so important? Ah, so language, I think, is only one part of it. I Agreed. think understanding the history is also really important. Wow. And the way people come from and where they come from is, is really important, too. So there's a, a very uh, famous saying. I think it was um, uh, François Mitterrand. I'm not sure um, mm-hmm. if I quoted him right. But uh, a, a person that says, you know, France is a very difficult country to to govern, you know, there are more cheeses than the number of days in a year. <laughs> so there are many different kinds of people and they have all different kinds of, uh, um, way of thinking. And, and then that maybe goes into, you know, individualism and, and characteristics, but absolutely learning a language helps us understand how people think. Uh, and actually quite interestingly enough, how people count in a language. Uh, also tells us very much about how they how they how they think. Why I think um, so. For example, like uh, something something like uh, let's say we 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 say it's a uh, eighty, right? Mm-hmm. In Chinese, it will be eight tens. Yep. Literal translation. Yep. In France, it's quatre vingt quatre. So it's twenty four. Right. So you can see that there's a lot more. Um, uh, I mean, I won't say depth is not quite the right word, but it's more flowery. It's a, it's a lot, um, there's a lot more thought to it. There's a lot more structure, uh, to the way people construct their sentences, to the way they think. The French are very deep thinkers. They don't act very fast, but they're very deep thinkers. And they would, they would argue, you know, the pros, the cons, and then come up with decisions, have everybody's point of view before they act before they start, you know, performing an action on something. But when they do act, they're very thorough and very precise. So so I think that that's probably why, you know, some of the best engineers in the world are French. Yeah, it could be. And it's funny, one of my Italian friends, <laughs> and this is him talking, not me, says that one of his favorite places in the whole world is the south of France. Oh, Yes. And the reason why is not only because it sits on the Mediterranean and it's beautiful and it only rains seven days a year. A year. I mean, that that's obvious. But one of the reasons he said is because you get all of the sort of flair and the creativity and, the, you know, what what's the right word? Like this amazing wildness of like the Italians and the great food and you have all the organization and the thoroughness, right, and the deep thinking of the French combined in one place. Yeah, so I, I think that was he's, interesting. I think he's right. Yeah. 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 So can you tell me this? So you after living in France for 10 years and living outside of Singapore for 25, when you come home, do you have like a different view on what it's like for people then to move into Singapore as foreigners or as not non-original residents of Singapore and maybe the challenges that they face when they come mm-hmm. into a new place? Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, I, although I'm, I'm Singaporean and very proud to be Singaporean, um, I've lived in so many places. So coming back to Singapore doesn't feel like coming home Fair because enough. home has changed so much. Yep. And I think that the idea of nationality is slowly, um, dying for me, uh, personally, because I think that I think more in terms of belonging and communities. 
uh, all over the world, I could find communities where I I belong, uh, where I can find connectedness with people. And I think that in this world where there's so much more travel, there's so much more movement, uh, either because of work or uh, for family reasons, uh, for example, going to any new place, I think it's important to set ourselves up. Uh, first of all, with a mindset that it's going to be different, right. it is different. Right. Uh, for I think it's especially hard for 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 people like you and I, if we have lived away for so long, to go back to the country of origin or yes. where we were most you know spent our childhood, for example. I think people like us would have a harder time because there's an expectation in our head that goes, oh, you know, I know Connecticut or I know Massachusetts or I know Singapore. And it would be easy for me to just slip back in. But in fact, there there's constant movement in all of these places. So I think first being very self-aware of where we are in life and what we want to do at that phase. Um, of course, getting the very basics right, right? Getting lodging, uh, mobile phone set up, <laughs> uh, all those kind of basic things. Once that's set up, the very next thing would be really to look for, uh, places and people that we could, we could have a routine, uh, of some sort and find people, uh, who we can call, uh, friends and community and a sense of belonging. I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, I think you've put a super fine point on it. I used to say in much more simpler terms that culture shock is known, right? You know when you go to a new place that it's going to be going to be different. But reverse culture shock is really hard. And I meant kind of what you were saying, and that is you have this preconceived notion when you go, and I'll put home in quotes, that it is going to be unchanged, that the Massachusetts or Connecticut that you left is just sitting there waiting for you in its original shape and form. And yet when you get there, it's just it's completely different too. So all of your sort of preset things about how to get along and how to get by are just wrong. And that's yeah. actually more confusing than when you go and live in France and you're like, I know nothing about this place. I don't speak the language. I'm going to have to adapt. Yes. Right? So it's fascinating. Yeah. That's always been really fascinating for me. And the same as you. My, I used to go back to the United States like two or three times a year for business. So I was never away for that long. But I haven't been back to the United States since August of 2010. It's, you know, it's November of 2017. So it's almost what? seven, eight, seven and a half years. Yeah. And, I, you know, in the same way that I say, like, I'm unemployable because I could never go work at a big organization again, I'm not sure I could live in the United States again just because I've been away for so long. And again, I'm proud like you are. I'm not unproud. It's just, I think it would be really confusing to be there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and you made a really good point, too. Like, I like this idea. You said when I went to Hong Kong, this is you talking, right? Because you look the way you look, there's a perception that you're from there regardless, and no one's going to ask. They're just going to speak to you like a Cantonese native. Yes. And that's tricky, too, because you can't say, stop, I'm from Singapore. I don't know. You just have to get along, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I got this big discount when I was in Japan, too. You probably had a similar thing in France where people knew she's not French. And even if she does, again, in your words, sort of butcher the language, which I doubt you did, people give you a little bit of a discount and say, hey, look, she's trying. People yeah. appreciate it, right? Yeah, and I think that you hit the, that uh, really you know, well in the head. As long as you try, yeah. and I think that there's always um, you know, people receiving it on the other end will always reciprocate and say, hey, look, you know, I know that you're trying. I'm going to try too. Yeah, yeah. 
I think big people's biggest problems, right, when they go to a foreign country, they say like, you know, I don't like this about that place, whatever it is, fill in the blanks. The reality is that those people are just trying to get on with their day-to-day lives, right? And if you try just a little bit, they'll let you in and they'll do whatever you kind of need to help you out. But if you don't try at all, if you just presume that they're going to adapt to you in reverse, I think that's when you start to have problems. Mm-hmm. And I love the mm-hmm. fact that when you live overseas for so long, when you come home again, in quotes, it just informs almost everything you do about how you treat people around you because you're more open to trying to understand just what their whole situation is, what mm-hmm. their perspective is. It's been really useful for me. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and that translates very much into when I look back and see how you know, we, I have evolved as a person, as yeah. a manager, as and right now an entrepreneur. Really, um, I'm almost colorblind mm, mm. Uh, to to what people are uh, when they when they work for me um, or work with me rather. Um, and they can come from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, and being able to, you know, get everyone together. And to pull in the same direction with the same vision, that's also really important. And I think that the experiences that I have in the past have really helped me very much in getting people of different stripes to be together and to have fun at work right. at the same time. Yeah, I noticed that. Tell me a little bit now that you've brought it up. So tell me about Gorilla Space. Tell me about the genesis of the idea and tell me about that entrepreneurial journey, for lack of a better term, right? In a way, it looks really fun and exciting and all that stuff and glamorous from the outside, but there's a lot of hard work behind it. So why did you kind of choose the space that you chose? And and I don't mean that. There's no double meaning there for space. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was very aptly put, though, Michael. (laughs) I try. Um, Yeah. But why, why? And then I want to talk about the larger idea about what's going on globally in that space because I think it's really important and really interesting, actually. So thanks for asking this. Um, in fact, this is a, it's almost a labor of love, Gorilla Space. Um, so my co-founder happens to be, um, my life partner, my husband as well. Awesome. Um, so it's a husband and wife team. And Ben has been in the real estate industry for over 20 years. Wow. And he has the experience from Australia, China, Hong Kong, Japan, and Europe as well. And of course, Southeast Asia right now. And so he's always worked with the large companies, the big brokerages, including large tech companies uh, like Cisco, VMware, Dell, etc. And really built lots of tools for them. And he is a developer at heart, a closet developer is what I call him. <laughs> um, and so it was one day, actually last summer, uh, summer 2016, and we were driving to Malaysia for a little, you know, took a little road trip with the kids. And, and then, you know, it's that fateful day that you leave a little bit too late. It's pouring down rain. Right. You arrive at the causeway. There's a long line of cars and you know, it's going to be a long drive. <laughs> and, and Ben starts talking about these things that he's thinking about, you know, developing for his, his clients and, and, you know, what he would think that they would, what he think that they might react, how they might react and think about it. And then I just turned to him and said, Ben, what you do, what you're doing is absolutely fabulous. Why aren't you doing this for smaller companies? Think of, you know, blah, blah, blah company and X and Y company that could really benefit from, from the tools that you're talking about. Right. And then there was 
dead silence. <laughs> wow. But you could see all the cogs turning, right? And then by this time, the, uh, our twins in the back of the car were, were, were also, you know, coming up with ideas and they're learning how to code. So, you know, they're, they're talking about it as well. So, so that got us thinking and, and really excited. So I got out some paper and we basically just drafted it. Cause in my previous role at Murex, um, I also helped make projects come to life. Um, and roll out those plans and pilot them and get partnerships, et cetera, buy-in. So then it looked like it's, it was a feasible idea. But we had, you know, good corporate jobs and we were thinking, well, let's test this out because everybody says you could get user buy-in, right? Right. So then, you know, the weekends, et cetera, we would, you know, go out to different smaller companies, to the suppliers, et cetera, and talk to everybody about these ideas. And it just blew our mind away because we talked to over a hundred companies. They all said yes. And we talked to co-working from the smallest co-working that has, you know, literally only 50 seats in this co-working all the way to an institutional landlord. They all said yes. So then it came to the point where we just had to make a decision. Either we're all in right. or we're all out. Right. I, I like to say you can't be half pregnant, right? Like you're either going to do this or you're not going to do it. But, right. so, but what were these ideas? I'm, I'm really curious. And you did this all in the car? I love the fact that this is starting yeah. in the rain. It was a long car, car ride. I'm sure, it was. <laughs> I'm sure it was. But so what are these ideas? Like what was the, what was the big, what were the big themes? So the big themes are really, first and foremost, getting people and getting small and medium-sized businesses, the help that they need with real estate. The big companies like, you know, the big banks or the big uh, Google, the big tech companies, et cetera, uh, or industrial companies are big enough to hire their own real estate person. Uh, they have requirements large enough that if they went to a big brokerage, the brokers would be very happy to help them because it's a large requirement. Right. Right, which means large fees. Right. But for the small companies uh, that are starting out, say either a solopreneur or a two-person uh, company or a six-person company, well, where do they go? How do they make decisions? How do they go from the very beginning of searching for workspace all the way to negotiation and signing the lease? What are things that they should look out for? There's nobody there to kind of help them with that. There's no easy place from the beginning to the end of that of that process. So we talked about how we need to help. We obviously can't do everything all at once. It has to start somewhere. And our thought was, well, let's start at the very beginning. And the very beginning meant that it was the search. How do people search? How can they find information? So doing a and doing a you know a, a rough study of it uh, both in Singapore and our understanding in Europe, where we lived and worked for a while, to China, to Australia, and Hong Kong, where we also lived and worked. Uh, the information is not transparent. You know, it's real estate, whether it's residential or commercial. In fact, commercial is slightly worse. It's, it's many layers of introduction. It's very opaque. You don't know if the information is right or wrong. Uh, if you went to a broker, you do not know if the broker is pushing you the, the the spaces that he or she has been asked to sell or really taking care of the entire market, right? So the, so we want to make the availability of information open 
that users can see information and can find information. So we're starting at the very beginning on the search. We also were very clear that we wanted to accompany businesses, small and medium-sized businesses, in the entire growth of their company. So they could start off from two people to four to 10 to 20 to 50, for example. We want to be there at every stage. So we, we're not focusing only on one vertical, which is just co-working or just service office. Um, and we want to cover the entire part because there'll be times in a company's growth um, that they might say, okay, you know, I really need my own space uh, because of financial regulations uh, because of uh, the nature of my business mm-hmm. um, and because, you know, I want to establish a good company culture and I need that to, I need to do it on my own terms. Right. So there are many reasons why a user, a business would need different kinds of spaces at different times. So we want to be that platform. Yeah, sorry, I'm just trying to get my head around this because this is not a, this is not what I thought it was going to be. But this is really interesting, right? Who who would you say are your main customers at the beginning? And then I think it'll inform some of the other questions that I have because I find the business model actually quite interesting. Okay, so our our business, uh, our clients right now are really the target audience from small to medium sized companies. Um, we initially thought that startups would need more most help. But in fact, in Singapore, many of the startups are able uh, to go to an accelerator or to go to uh, an investor's uh, surplus space office to work. And the clients that have actually come to us are the growing companies. Um, so some of our comp- uh, some of our clients are like funding societies. Um, you know, it's a startup, um, but they've grown from you know two people, four people, and now to forty people. Uh, including Money Smart. So Money Smart's been around for a couple of years. Um, yeah, so so growing companies, really, the SME sector, very much so. And do you have your own space as well? I know that may sound like a silly question, but if I come to Singapore, can I go work in a place that's called Gorilla Space? Uh, good question. So uh, there has been talks about, you know, should Gorilla Space have our own spaces? Um, right now, we... We are really looking to be a platform and we're very concentrated to being a platform. Uh, so it functions very much like Airbnb where we don't own our own spaces or at least not yet. Um, there's rumors that Airbnb might own their own spaces, but mm. that's another topic. Um, yeah, so we're a platform. We put space owners together with space users. So yeah. this is something that's going on globally. And it's so funny because the way people talk about this, right? There's a gorilla in the room, but you're already called gorilla space, so we can't even use that terminology. Yeah, but, well, but I'm so you glad guys. you asked that question because that's actually how the name came about, um, and why we're covering all the different types of space. Like because it. honestly, right now the topic of co-working is very hot, right? Everybody is talking about co-working, how how community happens, and all that, which is correct, and it's and we totally support co-working. Um, but there are also other kinds of spaces that are not looked at. Yep. Um, our name came from this experiment with um, two psychologists. Uh, and you might have seen this experiment where the audience was told to watch a video of yep. one minute long. Yep. Uh, and there are eight people in the video, four dressed in white and four dressed in black. The audience was told to look at and count how many time, times the white team, the team in white, passes the basketball to each other. 
Halfway through the video, someone clad in a gorilla suit comes in, dances, thumbs its chest, and then waves goodbye. The end of the video, how many people have seen the gorilla? Right. <laughs> so we'd be very surprised that 75% of people don't see the gorilla. And this is a, this is not just a, you know, experiment that was done just in the US, right? right. Or just in, in Singapore. Globally, 75 people, 75% don't see it. And looking for office space is very much like that. We think we know what we want. We're just so concentrated on it. We're trying to find that, that thing, but we forget to look at all other options. And in fact, that's why Gorilla Space is, is looking at all options and also coming up with solutions for small and medium-sized companies saying that, tell me and let's drill down to what you need. Based on what you need, you might consider these options. That's a much better way of looking at things. Um, there are many websites out there uh, that, you know, they're popping up quite often now, but they're just listing platform, which is yeah. a one-time transaction, I which is it. you like the space, you buy it, you rent it. Yep. But workspace doesn't really work like that. No. Because a workspace is very personal, um, even though people, you know, might think, oh, it's just work. But work is where people spend most of their time. Business owners who are small and medium-sized companies, even if a company of, uh, say, 50 people, 100 people, look at workspace, they should think about some other criteria of, is there enough light? Is it convenient for my people? Uh, will I be happy here? Right? What, uh, do, I, do, what do I, I do for lunch? Yes, exactly. How do I engage my employees? How can I retain them? Right. If I work late, do I feel safe when I go home? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So there are many <laughs> things that go on and it's not just price and workspace is never a one-time, uh, quick decision. It's not like booking a hotel room. Um, it's really for a, a period of time because any movement is, can be quite disruptive to a company and to a business. Right, so I want to walk you through a personal experience. When I first moved to Tokyo in 1990, I was 24, almost 25 years old. And I had never looked for a place to live on my own ever. Okay, and the firm was paying for it, so it wasn't even my money. And my first experience with a real estate broker was getting taken to what I, even then I realized at the beginning, like this was their excess garbage inventory, and they just figured since I wasn't paying for it, they could just show me what I considered to be really terrible places and hopefully I'd grab one of those as opposed to something that was nicer and newer and then I just changed my whole strategy just show me new stuff like that was my thing over time I got better at this but I do think you're right it's very opaque I don't know what the inventory is I don't know why they're trying to put me in a space and I think it's probably even worse for business spaces and you make a really good point too so there are other businesses out there that do that that for now we won't name them we'll talk about the bigger ones in a second and it seems very transactional to me. But the difference for me between, you know, if you have a family of four, it sounds like you have twins at least, right? You could potentially live in your home or apartment or condo for 15 years. Maybe you'll renovate it. Maybe you'll change it. It's not likely that your family is going to grow from four to 40. Mm. But, but your business could do that pretty easily if it's growing, mm. right? Yeah. So looking for a home and looking for a business space, two completely different things. And I like the fact that you like to stay for the whole growth of the company, right? In other words, I'm not just doing small companies. If that small company turns into somehow turns into an MNC, mm -hmm. I want to be there with them when they want to build their, 
you know, their headquarters in Singapore or in Mal- wherever yeah. it is, right? So it's a very right. different way of looking at that business, I think. Right, right. And I think that uh, between my co-founder and I, both of us have experience in the real estate part and also for me uh, later on in my career looking at um, talent, looking at engagement, looking at leadership, um, and company strategies and many things that go into that. And so we'd like to combine the knowledge and experience that we have as well as leveraging on our partners to make it possible for other small and medium sized companies to, to benefit from those things. Yeah. Cause most companies, um, unless they're in real estate, obviously, they don't think about real estate. No, they don't. And it's funny. A lot of people don't understand this too, but even really big businesses like McDonald's, so these are real estate businesses, right? They're, they're looking for locations. They're trying to figure out where the most efficient use of their capital is for real estate acquisition. And most people don't understand that they actually have massive real estate divisions. Microsoft probably has a real estate division as well. Um, mm-hmm. I know Goldman Sachs did, right? Where do we oh, put yeah. our offices? Ev- yeah. Everybody does. And no one thinks about it because they don't think about it in the context of a real estate business. They just think even – let's talk about this a little bit, right? A company like WeWork. It has been in the news recently, and you must mm-hmm. think about that at some level. Mm-hmm. And it gets press for, you know, for being kind of a cool place and a great space and community, all this other stuff. But the reality is, that's just a gigantic real estate business at some level, right? And mm-hmm. that, that's my view, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. often wrong. But I wonder in the context of what you're doing, and now that I have a better understanding of it, it's very different than what they're doing, and then mm-hmm. different than what sort of the Naked Hub and Jusco are doing too. What do you think about from a competitive standpoint? If you if you don't mind me asking, I'm just curious what it looks like to you. Mm. Yeah, so so I think that uh, um, this is my personal opinion. Um, from a platform point of view, uh, we actually work with all the players. So we work yeah. list on us with our on our platform, and actually we know the the local WeWork team very well. So. They were space mob before WeWork acquired them. And I think that WeWork did a fabulous job of having T and, and his team on. Um, they're fabulous people and very open-minded, thoughtful, and hardworking. So those combined together make a formidable team. We also have worked with, we're also working actually with uh, Jusco. Mm. Um, and, and not so much the Naked group yet because they're still in China. Yep, yep. Um, and and others that are in the region and in Singapore. So in terms of platform, uh, we ha- actually all of the co-working are on our platform. So that's why we're so proud of it because we're the only ones, uh, having started in May this year, uh, to have all of them as partners. Many people, I think, uh, especially the smaller operators, might worry that you know the WeWork coming, etc. Um, because they're a big giant, um, they're going to, you know, increase the supply by 30%. Um, Are they? and then there's going to be a price war. And, you know, there's, there's always fear, hmm. I think, when you have a big giant. Um, but the way I see it is the tide, you know, rises and all the boats rise with the tide. Um, these are the, the WeWorks are the, it's going to be the company that would do a lot of the marketing around co-working, <laughs> what it's about and shared <laughs> offices. So that's great. It is. And, and just like in France, there's so many kinds of cheeses. There are. There can be many kinds of spaces for different kinds of people. 
So I think the key is in differentiating what their product is all about. Um, you know, somebody going to a place, a, a place like Impact Hub, um, is not going to like a space like WeWork. What's the difference? I don't so know. I want to find out actually. Yeah. So, so, um, co-working service offices and surplus space, uh, in guerrilla space, we put them under the category of flexible spaces. And flexible spaces means you, you it's a shared office space, right? Mm-hmm. So you can have a hot desk where it means you come into a space and you work at any of the seats that are available. A fixed desk is, uh, this is the desk that you have all the time. You can leave your monitor overnight. You have a locker. It's your place. So those are fixed desks. Got it. And then you have what we call the private rooms or the private offices where it's still your own space. It's fixed. And there's a door to it. You lock it up and that's your little company space. So within these kinds of flexible spaces, there are many different types of options of getting space, so as to speak. Then comes the services side of things, which is the community. And I think this is that very big discussion about community. Uh, community in all of these co-working spaces mean the, the little businesses and people that make up, that sit within a particular location or a network. So, for example, WeWork would have, they claim to have over 100,000 members. That means that over 100,000 little companies that working at WeWork. Right. Um, and you can then, within the internal network, say, reach out to somebody. Let's say you need marketing, and you could basically go onto WeWork's directory and type in marketing, and you get a list of all the people who work in marketing, uh, and you can reach out to them to say, hey, I need you know X and Y. Can you do it for me? Right. Right? So that's the internal network of business sharing, business collaboration, and and doing business together really. So so I think that is that big component and with community also comes vibe. That that that's a very hard uh, thing to put your your finger on because um, some people will say well, you know, ping pong tables are great but for my business I don't want a ping pong table. I want something more professional. So you can go from the very startupy all the way to the very corporate. Right vibe of co-working spaces. So when I say somebody who wants to go to an impact hub may not like a WeWork. Got it. Well, but that's because it's in different stage of business as well. Yeah, and I, I like this. So if I had to, and I wish I was sitting in front of you right now because I could draw this out on a whiteboard. I, I like drawing things out. But <clears throat> the business that you're doing is very different than the way I understood it before we start talking, and that's great. I love learning things, particularly when I talk to new people. And... You're building a platform. You've already built yes. a platform. You'll continue to build a platform. And for me, I'm curious to hear about the pitching that you're going to be doing as well, right? Because that, that, <laughs> oh, oh, well, for a bunch of different reasons. But for me, and, and I'll tell you why, because here's what can happen. And it can. I'm not saying it will, right? But here's what can happen. You can watch a company like Fab. I know it sounds like it's not on topic, but it will be in a second. Um, you know, build a fashion business, go global expand to other countries, raise hundreds of millions of dollars, have a billion-dollar valuation, and 18 months later, sell itself for $10 million. And the only thing that's there is sort of the embedded technology and some of the inventory. And then the company itself kind of disappears or they have to pivot some into some other entity. 
and that that's bad for investors but it's an interesting sort of case study in how to grow and how to build and the fact that just because you're a gigantic business today doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a huge business tomorrow mm-hmm. so why does why does that matter here well let's take WeWork you know WeWork is taking a massive risk by raising 10 billion dollars by going global really quickly and by building, like you said, this whole business, you know, based on vibe and all these other things. But remember, they take risks you don't take. In other words, they'll rent an entire building. They'll take a lease for three years and then try to fill it. And it necessitates a certain type of behavior by them, which may over time, may, I'm not saying, right, but may over time not necessarily be sustainable. But what you're doing, if I understand this, is better in my mind. I'll tell you why. It's at least more savvy. What you're saying is I'm indifferent to the provider on the other side. I mean, sure, you want the best provision of services for sure and the best spaces. But as long as they meet your standard for a two-person office, a four-person office, a 40-person office, the flexibility, the safety, you know, all those things that matter to you, you kind of don't care what the brand is on the other side because you've built a platform that takes that really fragmented industry, right? If you consider every company part of the fragmentation and every office where they work a fragmented space, you're indifferent now to where that comes from as long as they sit on your platform. So you're building this sort of really robust horizontal platform that connects to verticals. And if one of those verticals that plugs into you disappears, you kind of don't care because somebody will come and replace it. That's the power for me and the leverage in the platform that you're Mm -hmm. building. Am I missing something or... I think you've you've explained it really well. I wish I could have explained it as succinctly as you did, but yes, that's that's it. And I think that users at the end of the day care about the things that they care about. Right. What is best for you, Michael, is not best for me. No. It's not gonna be best for another company and it depends on their business and what they need. So having the uh, accessibility to information in a very good way of getting the information and comparing and all of that is very important for a company. Very. So we've been very, very happy that we've had, you know, we've had traction since we started in the very first month in May. And, 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 you know, we have client feedback that tells us, you know, I thought this is going to be a terrible, terrible process where I have to visit. (laughs) Right, a thousand places. Yeah, between 10 and 15. And you can imagine if you're building a business, visiting 10 to 15 spaces, even if you spend 20 minutes just visiting, uh, you have also spent uh, time and money researching them and then visiting them and then making your decision. So with the platform, somebody told us that we only, we looked at your platform, we selected five, we visited five on the same day within two hours and we signed the lease the next day. Right. That is unheard of. It is unheard of. And I think the power of the platform and the way we see things, it's really different as well. We really give up everything. So we don't do secret squirrel. We don't tell you it is maybe on this road. Right. We tell you this is the address. (laughs) This is the full address. These are all the information that you need. All you need to do is basically to click and book a visit. Right. Let us take care of all of those things. So that you can, this will be the go-to platform to find all your information. And, and then for the supply side as well, we tell them, look, you partner up with us. We give you all the information. We don't do secret squirrel things with you either. Right. To say only if you accept this particular client at this price, do we do this? Um, and it's the same flat fee for everybody. 
so so that it's a level playing field as well. And the suppliers have told us, uh, and we see them, well, the suppliers, we see them as partners, really. Right. Um, they have told us that we really enjoy working with you. You you bring us good leads. You know, we don't get strange people walking in and just to take pictures of the space. Right. Because it's just beautiful. <laughs> right. And so, so we really shave time off both the businesses looking for workspace as well as our partners who have lots of things to do. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about client acquisition, if you don't mind? In other words, what do you do to market? How do people find out about Gorilla Space, both from a supplier standpoint, meaning I have extra space that I'd like to, you know, put on the platform, or I'm looking for space? How, how do you acquire those clients? Yeah. So on uh, on the supply side, on the on the listings, we have gone out to every single one and to talk to them. We speak with them about what they need, what they what the pain points are. So this all happened before we decided to take the plunge. Right. 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 Um, and so they they've put a face uh, to our name. They know who we are. We can speak the language. Um, with them simply because you know my co-founder has the experience yeah i mean the fact that ben worked at jones lang was hell doesn't hurt right and right. also worked at regis like those things are really important for credibility and for gravitas yeah right right and so and ben is able to you know help them think through some problems as well so on the supplies that they come to us now so we have had people say uh, the newest one, for example, Carrot Patch or CoSpace. Um, they've come to us and say, we want to list with Gorilla Space. We've heard good things. So, so that's, that, that really warms our heart, which means it's really working. Um, we absolutely could do a lot better with marketing and with, with branding ourselves, etc. So we, we've always said to ourselves that we need to hone the product. We need to answer the needs of both Users on the supply and the demand side, right. um, and then we would, you know, turn the machine on, because without proper product marketing, basically just speeds up our demise. Yeah, no, it does. So it just, yeah, yeah, exactly. To do that. And it wastes time um, and money, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so right now we are really still in the in the process of honing the product and getting things out, um, and listening very clearly to the users. Um, and, and really building that way. And so are most of your clients on the, I'll say customer, not on the supplier side. Are they, are they businesses that are already in Singapore for the most part? Or are they, let's say, you know, I'm expanding from Malaysia or I'm expanding from Indonesia or I'm expanding from Thailand and I want to get a space in Singapore. Do you see that use case a lot as well? Yes. In fact, we see both. Yeah. We absolutely do see both. Yes. So, so that's a that's a good thing for us because mm. then we understand where the clients are coming from, what they're looking at, right? Um, and being able to help them, yeah. So you said at the beginning of the conversation that you have been chosen to pitch somewhere. Can you talk about that a little bit, or is that too private? Sure. So the pitch will take place um, in November twenty eighth. It's at a, a conference uh, called MIPIM, M I P I M. It's a, a property conference and it's been going on for, you know, since the beginning of time, it feels like. And Ben <laughs> has um, actually been a participant at MIPIM for a very long time. And this year, they're doing something special. They have partnered up with Metaprop, an accelerator in property out of New York, um, who have a startup competition uh, in New York, London and Hong Kong. 
uh, out of all the applicants uh, that they receive, they pick the top nine. And then these nine would pitch in their respective cities. The top three of each city will be brought together and uh, pitch again in Cannes in France in March 2018. Wow, do you think you have an edge if you get to go to France? <laughs> particularly <laughs> in that part we have of particularly an edge because we have a good product. Good we answer. Have a good product. And and I think that that is uh that's good because we're solving a real problem. So we hope that we will be able to communicate that um problem and the solution that we bring uh to the judges. Yeah, so you, and, and I don't want to go here, but I just want to think about this. If you get the, if you nail this space, right, the real estate market is so big globally, and, and it's also huge regionally as well, but there's more to the real estate market than just kind of renting spaces as well, even though that market itself is huge. I mean, I think we could go on for hours talking about the next question, but do you consider sort of, because, you know, people talk about ed tech and fintech, you know, and health tech and all this other stuff, but very few people, at least recently, have been talking about prop tech, right? You use the word. Um, but I have thought about this. There's very sort of little technical innovation in the real estate market. I see what Airbnb is doing, but mm-hmm. that's a completely different business model, right? They're attacking something that's very different than what you're looking at. Are there other places that you can use the platform? And I'm sure the answer is yes, but like, how much time do you think about what it's like in five years if you build this platform, all the data you accumulate? Do you know what I mean? Like, would you ever go into the lending business? There's just so much stuff to do there. Yeah. And, um, you're absolutely right. You know, the world is our oyster. Feels you just like have it. to use the right fork. <laughs> <laughs> you say the greatest things. <laughs> we can do so many things, but we have to choose what we can do well at this very moment. For sure. And I think that the thing that, we, you know, we, we have so many ideas and there could be no lack of great ideas and there will be other people after us who will do many great things as well. But the one thing that we can do very well right now and where we're concentrating all our energies is in that search, uh, process and matching because I think that that would shave off a lot of the time for people. And we've already seen that happen. And then we will probably move down the chain. Um, but at which stage right now, I can't tell. Uh, what is the dream? The dream is basically to be able to make available the tools that we have to a lot more businesses worldwide. It's a, That's the great place to end, I think, if you don't mind. Like this whole conversation... Wow, the last few days for me have been amazing. Sorry. That's great. Um, it's just been you awesome. You have the best seat. <laughs> I really do. You have no idea. Um, anyway, I really just want to say thank you to you. It's been awesome. If you can tell people the best way to contact you and your partner, that would be super as well. And then we can just say thank you and say goodbye. But just please let people know how they can get in touch with you and how they can find out more about Gorilla Space. Great. Thank you so much, Michael. So the way to get to, to speak to us would be, uh, to send us an email at either ben at gorillaspace.co or ginny at gorillaspace.co. That's g-i-n-n-y at gorillaspace.co. Okay, Ginny. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.